I trust that uh, you all are as thankful as I am for uh, the great gifts of so many who lead us on the worship team week by week. Uh, one of the things that Marinelle and I have just been amazed at uh, in being with you is the riches of giftedness uh, in, in so many, from so many age groups. Uh, uh, anyway, enough said, really thankful for that. And, uh, and Stephen, as your string broke, wherever uh, he, he moved to sit, there he is. Uh, uh, I was thinking, uh, you know, one uh, steps aside out of many, but the body keeps working and the guitar keeps working, uh, which is a good reminder of uh, the unity of the body and how uh, much each of us is needed, uh, and at moments more uh, than we knew uh, when a string uh, breaks, uh, in, in that direction. One other thought before uh, I read our text from 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I've had, uh, and I won't share them, don't think it appropriate, not that there would be anything wrong, but I've had several comments from parents uh, that have encouraged me greatly in the last few months of uh, some of their kids and uh, teens that have uh, uh, made comments or engaged in conversations and uh, and just really understood things uh, in the scripture. And it reminded me uh, of maybe something that we who preach don't say enough, and that is uh, uh, don't uh, think about what you don't understand as much as what you do understand. Uh, it's a lifelong building process. The scripture is a big book, and we'll see in this passage this morning how much the Apostle Peter uh, is really just led by the Holy Spirit because of what's happened in the Lord Jesus, uh, explaining how Old Testament prophecies and what the prophets taught is now before the world in uh, a, a new way. And as we seek to witness to the world, uh, as Peter is calling us, I loved uh, the reflection uh, quotes that were in uh, this morning, and it made me think of another one. Uh, Mark Twain was not known as a uh, the church's greatest supporter, uh, but I love his insight. It's almost like a Wizard of Oz kind of uh, statement. Uh, he said, I don't worry so much about the things in the Bible that I don't understand. I worry about the things in the Bible I do understand. And if you read the word much, uh, you'll understand uh, why that concerned him because there are things about the importance of the gospel and Jesus, the cornerstone that we talked about last week, uh, that really are the tilting point, the fulcrum in all of human history and indeed eternity. Let me pray and let me read our text. Father, thank you for your word. It is yours. You spoke it clearly and had your apostles write it down so that we had it. We give thanks and we ask that by your spirit and your written word, the living word, Lord Jesus, that we might be transformed even more this morning into your image. To your glory and in your name we ask it. Amen. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, as we continue in this study on the true grace of God. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day of the Lord's coming. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as servants, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were with us uh, last week in looking at verses 4 through 8, we saw that we who in belief honor Christ Jesus, God's chosen cornerstone with with which everything in the universe will one day line up, that those of us who in belief honor him will never ultimately, finally be put to shame. But those who reject Jesus as the cornerstone stumble into dishonor and judgment. So thus, uh, our topic this morning is uh, an honored people. Uh, We are in Christ an honored people who honor God in ways fitting to him and honor everyone in ways fitting to them. That's what this text is about. First heading, uh, Mercy Me, a race, a priesthood, a nation for God's possession. Uh, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A lot of us have heard of uh, the singing group Mercy Me. A lot of us uh, know the lyrics, uh, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see When your face is before me, I can only 
imagine. I won't put in the yeah. I guess I just did. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. I can only imagine. It's a wonderful song. Uh, It's encouraging to listen to those lyrics, and I'm not at all trying to deconstruct it or uh, be negative about it. I bring it up merely because I want to add to it something that in the apostolic teaching is crucial. Think of those words and try changing the first person singular to the first person plural. We can only imagine. Because most of the U's, Y-O-U, in the New Testament are plural. And so when the admonitions come you, it's not just me or you as an individual, it's the group. And we need to get to the place where we see that we have a an individual responsibility, but very much a collective responsibility. And, and we need to imagine what it would be like if the church becomes ever more devoted and ever more faithful to the Lord. How it would encourage the individuals who make up the church and what a difference it would make in the way that the world looks at the church. We can only imagine, will we sing hallelujah, will we be able to speak at all. It's important that we imagine that we see ourselves as the chosen race. Boy, race is a loaded word today, and yet the Bible dares to use it, doesn't it? And the Greek behind the word race here is uh, genos. We think of genes biologically and genealogy. Uh, It's saying, and if we think of the new birth that Peter's talked about in chapter 1, if you are in Jesus Christ, born again of the Spirit, you have a new genealogy. You are part of an entirely new race with different genes, biologically, in the spiritual sense. You're different from everybody else because everybody else is in the land of the living on the way to the dying. We as believers, as Howard Hendrick said, we're in the land of the dying on the way to the land of the living. And we want everybody to honor Jesus, the cornerstone, and to join in on that because it has nothing to do with us. It has to do with his setting us apart. We together, Peter is reminding us, are royally born and adopted as a priesthood. As Israel was to minister to the nations and to show them how the people of God were to live, the words from Exodus, uh, or in chapter 19, just before chapter 20, where the ten words, the ten commandments are. And as we studied last fall when I first got here, the ten words are really uh, not hoops to jump through to get in. They're the way that those who have God's life and God's spirit are to live out the new life that is theirs. And therefore, the call to be a priesthood is to show outsiders how wonderful that is so we're set apart to God as a holy nation Israel was to be a light to the nations Israel in living out the ten words was to show the goodness of God and the beauty of God that when people in a culture can trust one another think of what the commandments do 
You don't slander your neighbor. He can trust, she can trust that his or her neighbors are going to say fair things about them. That when somebody, uh, i got to brag on my late father-in-law here, uh, so many lawyers in Miami that were trained by him uh, before all the computer links were there to learn things uh, for 25 years, that people said of my father-in-law in Miami, if it weren't for the danger of his dying, you didn't need a contract with Julian Quarles. Because what he told you today is what he would say to you tomorrow or 10 years from now, unless the two of you agreed together to change it. Oh, I can only imagine. We can only imagine when people keep their word and honor their neighbor's words in that kind of way. So we're all set apart, first of all, Peter tells us, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The Greek for excellencies uh, in this context speaks both of God's powerful acts and the resulting call out of darkness into light that those acts bring. It points to God's power, but also to His grace and His mercy. His excellencies are not just His eternal attributes, but when Israel was called in those very words to proclaim the excellencies of God, what do you think they thought about? They thought about the exodus. We've been in bondage for 400 years, and it was in significant part our own doing out of our unfaithfulness. But the excellencies of our God are out of nowhere when violence was coming against us. He heard our cry, and in His mercy, He not only heard, He listened, and He came down, and He delivered And you and I this morning have not only those excellencies in our heritage, but we have the excellencies of being delivered from the ultimate pit and the ultimate violence through the cross. And so we say our God is the God of the Exodus. And that deliverance points to the final deliverance and the making of the ultimate new people. Israel left Egypt and became a nation, a new nation of priests that were to minister from Jerusalem. Read the Psalms and you'll find, uh, at the, the end of the book of Isaiah, you'll find that Israel, if they were faithful, was going to see the nations go to them. Why do you think the Queen of Sheba came uh, to see Solomon in all of his wisdom in the kingdom of Israel and all his glory? Something good's going on here. I want to find out about it. So central to the wonder of God's excellencies that Peter is talking about, our need to praise God, not just for who He is, but for what He's done in Jesus and the cross, is the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, now incarnate, and His unimaginable death on a cross for us. You want to think of something unimaginable. Romans 8 talks about it, that God has done the unthinkable. While we were His enemies... While we were rebels, while we were undermining His glory, He took on flesh and gave His very life for us. That's powerful. The prophet Hosea wrote in chapter 2, verse 23, speaking for God as His prophet, and I will sow her 
for myself in the land, Israel like a seed. And I will have mercy on no mercy. No mercy is a name, and read Hosea if you need to know the story. And I will say to not my people, another name, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Hosea is referring to God's people's failure to keep the covenant, to keep being his royal priesthood and a holy nation to the other nations. Instead, Israel became much like the nations around them. They needed a merciful, divine restoration. And the roots and the promise of that need are in Exodus 19, which we talked about in another way a moment ago. Exodus 19.5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God said to Moses. But Israel didn't do it. They abandoned God's faithfulness and were unfaithful. And the ten northern tribes were sent into exile. And not long after that, Judah, the southern kingdom, was sent into exile, just like the prophets had promised. And Hosea 2 speaks of a time when God will in the future renew his people to speak again of his excellencies. Peter speaks in our text that Jew and Gentile together through the cross of Christ Jesus have been shown an incredible mercy. One new man, one nation out of two, Jew and Gentile, and Gentile simply means the non-Jews, Anybody that wasn't in the original covenant. Think of Galatians and Ephesians if you want to study it. Peter in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church as Jew and Gentile together, a new people, a new nation, a new priesthood to mediate God's mercy to the world. And so when it talks about a priesthood, one of the things that it's saying, if we forget this, we don't understand how it applies to us, that Israel was God's priest ministering the Word of God out of teaching and modeling obedience to the nations. Like I said, at the end of Isaiah, you have the nations flooding in to Israel in the final consummation, which is there in fulfillment in the last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. And, and you know one of the things it says in the end of Isaiah, prophesying what's going to happen in Revelation? Guess who are going to be Levites? Gentiles. Can you imagine reading that in Isaiah day? Isaiah's day? Can you imagine standing in a pulpit in a synagogue and saying that? There are going to be Gentiles who are going to be your priests. I think there might have been a war. There might have been a dead rabbi before Jesus. So this is about the priesthood of the nation. Uh, a quick aside here, I don't want to take long on this, but I think it's important, uh, though I don't hear believers talking about this so much more uh, anymore, but even though they don't talk about it, uh, the problems it causes are lived out in the church. Uh, this is the passage... Uh, in Old Testament and New, 
that the term in theology, the priesthood of every believer, comes. Uh, because if everybody's a priest now, uh, then we don't need all this other stuff. Well, let me give you just a, a little bit of correction towards that. Uh, the good news is Martin Luther, in seeking to reform the church of his day, spoke of the priesthood of the believer in seeking to point the church towards sola scriptura. In other words, the priest wasn't in between the people and the scripture. Every believer can approach the word of God and the God of the word without a priest standing in between because Jesus is the only mediator. But this has sometimes been understood to give every believer all the authority of those the church ordains as officers, to use our language. And over the years, we've run a bit wild with the concept. I mean, surprise, surprise. I mean, imagine what America's trajectory towards absolute individual freedom could do with a concept like that. I mean, we think we can change everything about ourselves. So we can certainly change that. And Luther did right, indeed. Let everyone, therefore, who knows himself to be a Christian, be assured of this, that we are all equally priests. That is to say, we have the same power in respect to the Word and the sacraments. We can come to the Word as believers in Jesus, and we don't need the priest to turn the water or the wine and the bread into the body and blood of Jesus. But Luther immediately after says these same words, continuing, However, no one may make use of this power of the priesthood except by the consent of the community or by the call of a superior. Whoa! <laughs> Is Luther talking out of both sides of his mouth? Not at all. Uh, he simply say, if you as a, saying, if you as a believer priest come to the word, uh, let me put words into his mouth. I think he would like them. Uh, do not be arrogant. Uh, do not think that uh, the Holy Spirit has never illumined his word to anybody who came before you. You know, I once knew a group of men, uh, they were on crew staff and pretty prominent many, many years ago, uh, who with embarrassment now, at least one of them who told me the story he was there, uh, uh, prayed through the book of verse John all night long, demanding that God show them what a few verses meant. Once and for all, they wanted to understand it. One of them wrote a book based on that. It wasn't a good book. Though I love that brother, and he ministered to me in marvelous ways. But it's not as if the Spirit of God hasn't taught us in those who've gone before us. And then we can just ignore that and say the word means something else without very good reason in looking at the text. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't gift officers for the church and the church put them in place and that we don't owe the office respect. So you've got to put all that together. And the main thing I want to say from this, lest we get off track, is that, that Peter's not talking about authority for individuals or offices here, people's talk, Peter's talking about the obedience of the whole church to be priests to outsiders and how we do it, how we're to live it. That's what the text is about. A race, a priesthood, a nation for God's possession. Two, mercy me, abstain from fleshly passions. 
which wage war against our souls, in order to clear our neighbor's eyes as much as we can so that they can see our good deeds and might glorify God, both now and ultimately on the day of judgment. They might be ready for it. That's what the text is saying. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Remember we said back at the beginning, we can't be absolutely sure. Some of the people in Asia Minor that Peter's writing to may have been literal geopolitical exiles, chased out of Rome, Jews, Christians already, Uh, But it may just be that he's talking about the fact that those of us who belong to the new nation, the new genos, the new ethne, ethnicity of being in Jesus Christ, uh, are always going to be outsiders to our culture. And we're going to get in trouble for it. More about that in a moment. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, amongst the outsiders to the faith, honorable, so that they may speak, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're holy. We're set apart for God's purposes. We share in the sanctification of the Spirit and the new birth. And Peter told us in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, that by the Spirit, for the obedience that comes by faith, we're set apart by the sprinkling of Christ's blood on us. I think I've mentioned this passage once before since I've been with you, but let me tie it into this text because it's so important. Mark chapter 11, verse 17 and 18. Mark 11, 17 and 18, when Jesus cleanses the temple, Herod's temple that he had built in Jerusalem. And Jesus was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus' teaching is why people get upset with the church when we're faithful to. Because Jesus was saying that the prophecies told them that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all the nations because Israel, as God's chosen nation, was to be a light and a priest to help everybody else on their way to God. And just to see if any of you were listening the last time I said this, uh, what was the largest area in Herod's temple, the grounds and the buildings? The court of the Gentiles. The outsiders. That might tell you that God thinks the Gentiles are pretty important. He gave them the biggest space because part of Israel's very reason for existing was to lead God-fearing Gentiles to come and worship, even if they hadn't become Jews. And guess what? Where the money changers were, which had these really high rates. Got to be brief, but if you lived in Galilee, by the time you walked your sheep or your lamb to Jerusalem for the sacrifice, The lamb wasn't worth much. A 50-pound lamb, I'm making this up in numbers, but, you know, might weigh 25 pounds by the time he walked to Jerusalem without enough food and no time to rest. So what did everybody do? They uh, sold their lambs in Galilee or wherever, and they took their money, and they got to the temple, and the priests uh, wouldn't take their money. They said, oh, you need temple money because these are holy sacrifices, so you need holy money. Uh, Does that smell already? 
And, and by the way, your money's only worth half of what it was worth in Galilee. So it was extortion. And so, so not only are they taking the place where Gentiles were supposed to worship, but the fleshly passion of greed has taken over the leadership of the Jewish church. You get it? So they did not abstain from their fleshly passions. They let those fleshly passions make them rich. And they shamed themselves in the eyes of God and the eyes of the Gentiles. Do you wonder why God said he was done with the temple and tore it down in AD 70? That event is so significant. And it's why there needs to be a new temple, Jesus and that's the corporate responsibility of all believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And that responsibility in part is that how we shape the community of believers and how leaders operate is seen by outsiders. And we don't want to deserve to be disdained and ridiculed. Peter will deal in later chapters with when we suffer for wrong. But he says, don't need to suffer for wrongdoing you do. Live in a way that it's only... Uh, things that are right that they can blame you for. And that's part of what was going on because uh, the church had a tough time. And we're getting a little more used to aspects of that tough time year by year in the West. Uh, in the early centuries of the church, believers and other sects and groups, as the Romans saw them, were often accused uh, of being secretive. And it was not just the church that got spoken of as in their secret meetings, they're cannibals, and they're involved in all kinds of weird uh, sexual practices to try to uh, make them look bad. That's in the writings. I can give you the, the sources through the first two or three centuries. And many have said, and it's probably likely in some cases, though I've already told you that other groups got the same treatment, but when you think about the fact that the secret, the Christians didn't worship in the Roman public worship, they had their private groups only believers could take communion, and when people heard about it outside, that said they're eating the body and blood of Christ. It's not hard to get there in mob rule uh, that, oh, they're cannibals. And, and when women are treated uh, with tremendous value in a way that the culture did not, and then you say things like in your worship service, greet one another with a holy kiss, and everybody's supposed to do it. It's not all that hard in a public that doesn't like you to get from there to incest or to the Oedipal complex. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that is in the early critics uh, of the church. So people are mocking the church for its secrecy in those days. And that's why Peter is so concerned that the goodness of God is seen in their righteous living. Sin and rebellion in everyone leads us at times uh, to seek righteousness, but at other times it causes believers and unbelievers to be uh, shamed by righteousness. Uh, I can't remember if I told you this story or not. It made such an impact on me. I need to be quick, but uh, I had a, a, a new brother in Christ that I got to know in my Boston years, uh, and he took me over to Radcliffe College, now part of Harvard Radcliffe, uh, to meet his sister. Brilliant young woman, was so impressed with her. Uh, here's what she told me. This is in uh, the mid-1970s. How long ago is that? 45 years? Oh. You know what she told me? She had found out, and she was from, uh, she and her brother were from a Jewish family uh, practicing, 
I went to a Seder in their home that was one of the most meaningful evenings of my life, that she found out she was the only virgin in the dorm, large dorm. And the dorm had begun to go wild already. Uh, the rule, unspoken, was you were not shocked by anything, even if you were shocked by it. In other words, you, you didn't dare admit that you were shocked when a boy who was against the rules uh, stayed overnight in a girl's room, and there was a lot of that going on in 1975 or so at uh, Radcliffe. Uh, if you happened to uh, go to the restroom or have your door open late at night, and a boy came back down the hallway from the hall restroom with only a t-shirt on, you were not shocked. That was the atmosphere. And she found an interesting thing happened because everybody knew that she was a virgin. And it was because of her Jewishness that she was being faithful to God. That she had all kinds of friends, all kinds of girls wanted to be with her. They were attracted to her godliness. But a lot of those same girls were trying to get her guys to sleep with. And her interpretation was they would feel more comfortable around her even though they already liked her if she was like them. Do you see the tension? Don't get caught up with just what the elite culture is saying. There are a lot of individuals out there that are trying to, of every age group, that are trying to figure out a better way to live. And how we live makes a difference, regardless of what you're hearing on the news. And it can be used of God to point people to the truth of Scriptures. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles, which is everybody out there pretty much, honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our calling is not easy. We're to live by God's instructions, not the world's, for the sake of our neighbors. But we are also to show mercy and honor as we were shown mercy. And we're to be patient as God was with us. For the day of visitation and judgment is not here yet. Point three, sanctified by the Spirit. Sprinkled with the blood of obedience that comes by faith to Jesus. Uh, we're led uh, with wisdom by the Scripture to honor institutions and the emperor and foolish people. Boy, Christians have run a long way with that. Oh, those foolish people out there. Guess what? Without Christ, you're as foolish as they are. And sometimes, with Christ, we're pretty foolish. So how we speak of and talk to those outside us, that's what really what this final point that I need to move fast on is really talking about. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or governor sent by him to punish those who do evil, praise the good, those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Um, you know, when Christians are different, it will cause us to be disliked, and people will want to get us out of the way, as the Roman Empire wanted. Uh, the biggest reason some of the leaders in the Roman Empire wanted to get rid of the Christians is this, the idea of separation of church and state is not common to most cultures. And it's becoming less common in America as people are becoming in different ways more and more religious. I've said it to you before, let me say it again. There are no 
views that are not faith-based. And so the term faith-based, this or that, uh, is pretty weak because all of the philosophies that are out there are ultimately religious views, just like the Roman views of culture were religious. They may not have believed in, in one true God, but they're, they're principles they take by faith. I mean, just ask somebody who's giving you one of the cultural views today, uh, why do you believe that? I mean, in a gentle way, I really want to understand. On what do you base that? How are you sure that's true? It's by faith. Don't buy the language that you're being faith-based and everybody else is being rational. My friend Steve Brown would say, smells like smoke, it's from the pit of hell. Because it is. Because everything is faith-based. And ironically, uh, Rome was concerned that if not only the Jews who were an earthly ethnicity and an early earthly nation that was given a pass, but now these Christians, they were worse because they said people of every tribe and tongue and nation are part of our new nation, even though it's not of this world. And people said, if people start believing that, Roman unity is going to fall apart and charged Christians with sedition and executed some of them because they wouldn't stand with the cultural religion, don't have time to go deeper. And so ironically, the joy of what Peter and Paul proclaim for a people of any class or ethnicity to come and be one in Christ was attractive, and especially to women who were treated so low, and now there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Uh, That scared the culture. And an aspect, and I can only touch on it, of the great relevance, and it's a sad aspect and confusing, is that the cancel culture issues of our day are the narrow human power group lenses through which we see things. I want to be very careful here, and I can't say enough. If you've got questions, uh, ask me, but I think it's so important even with this text that uh, the cultural lenses of white supremacy or critical race theory uh, fail to engage with the universal and historical dilemma of human nature and historical insight, let alone fail to deal with God, God's Word. Os Guinness uh, was asked, and if you don't know who Os is, ask me, one of the brightest scholars uh, of this last century, uh, was asked how believers ought to approach the social justice issues of our day. I'm going to share this and bring us to an end. He said, first of all, we believers, if we're going to do what Peter says in this text, we need to agree solidly with the passion for justice that many are sharing in our day. Because there's injustice all around, not just in the U.S., but everywhere in the world. And, And we need to know that there have been no greater voices for justice in human history than the Old Testament prophets. And in American history, uh, some of the strongest voices for real justice, particularly on the issue of racism, are Fred, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., Booker T. Washington. Christians, in their background, in their outlook. But the foundation and the perspective that we approach justice with is crucial. And, and just stop and think, and you can maybe even ask this question if someone's arguing with you uh, that you have a 
relationship with about critical race theory, you can ask them, well, where do the ideas come from? And, and what does it take into account? Because in reality, Guinness says, it's a narrow a view of justice. Its only categories are justice, victim, and power, oppressor, oppressed. And so it has only one solution, get rid of the status quo, but it has nothing better to put it with, to, to replace it with. Nothing. And that's not religious or political, that's just a fact. And I don't know about you, I want to be very careful before I take one group of people who do injustice and replace them with another who do injustice in a different way. I mean, look around the world. Look at the history of North America and don't start with the Europeans. Start with the injustice amongst the Native American tribes and groups. Look at the injustice in the, the Mexican Indian cultures before the Spaniards got there. In other words, wake up and open your eyes to the reality of human sinfulness. You cannot avoid radical depravity of everybody in talking about these kinds of issues. And it shows us uh, more than anything else of the absolute need of the cross. And I would add to Oss's words just this. One of the great dangers of the current teaching on white supremacy and critical race theory is that these approaches seem to me, and I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis' Screwtape later, Letters, where Screwtape is coming up with new strategies to confuse people, that I cannot help but think that critical race theory and white supremacy don't take away the reality that there are sincere people holding to those views who really want justice, and you need to learn to identify that. What did Peter say? You need to learn to honor them where you can honor them, not call them names. But there is the reality that critical race theory and white supremacy are some of the best places I know in the 21st century in North America to hide from God. Because the way they define themselves, now I can feel good about myself because I'm willing to admit as a white supremacist I'm really bad but I really haven't dealt with my rebellion against God in all kinds of other areas. And I really haven't dealt with the fact that I've got to take up my cross daily and respect and honor even people I disagree with. And that's the balance, isn't it? That on the one hand, we've got to be holy in ourselves and our own lives and holy as a community I mean, look at what Paul had to deal with with the church in Corinth. Uh, some of the stuff the church has got accused to, Christians in the church were actually doing. We've got to do all of that, but we've got to realize that we're not righteous because we're righteous. We're righteous in Christ because of God's mercy, and we struggle so hard to live that way well. So should we be surprised that outsiders to the faith are struggling too? Or that when they see how long our culture has put up with some things... Uh, that they, they look at the church as an institution and have real trouble in seeing why they even ought to look there? I honor that. We've given good cause. Which is why I don't want you to hear me wrong here. Uh, you know, God's an equal opportunity offender and he, His word offends my sin. And He's an equal opportunity condemner. 
There's no righteous ethnicity or culture. There's only one place to find righteousness. And it's in the cornerstone. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the call for humility is so much greater. And I didn't like, I'm done with this. I didn't like preparing for this sermon this week. Uh, because how do I honor the government? And I, I've never liked any president perfectly in our culture. I mean, I didn't like some things about Ronald Reagan. Do you realize that he was one of the foolish people that helped get no-fault divorce into our culture? And it spread from California, the biggest influential state in many ways at that time. So this is not a political thing. But i got to honor the authorities in, with some respect. And so I told myself this week, you decide if it applies to you. i got to watch my mouth. i got to watch what I think is funny. i got to watch the political put-downs even if some things that people do and governments do is pretty stupid. But those stupid things, if they are really stupid, really affect a lot of people's lives. So they're not funny, no matter which party's in power. They ought to cause us to say, how do I act towards outsiders? Where they might want to talk to me and ask more. If I upset any of you, uh, I pray it wasn't me, I pray it was God. Because he's sure upsetting me about myself. Let's pray. Father, protect our thoughts, protect our passions by your spirit and your word. May we be wise people, but may we be increasingly merciful people like our Lord Jesus who was patient to the point of the cross. We honor him, and we proclaim your excellencies. Amen.